0: For a status, I am Malihe Razazan. Last November, CNN published a video of African men being auctioned for sale in Libya. The CNN crew carrying concealed cameras was able to witness part of an auction somewhere outside the Libyan capital Tripoli. But it appears that those running the auction got suspicious, the action wrapped up, and those running the auction did not want to talk to the CNN crew. The men being auctioned were African migrants and refugees who were in Libya hoping to cross the Mediterranean Sea from there to Europe. Some were refugees escaping political turmoil, while others were fleeing economic hardship in countries such as Nigeria, Niger, Chad, Ghana, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Sudan. Some of those trying to make it to Europe also include Syrians, Bangladeshis, and other nationalities. But the more refugees are intercepted at sea, the more of them get stuck in Libya, caged in detention centers in poor humanitarian conditions, or at the mercy of gangs and smugglers. Human rights abuses of African refugees in Libya have been documented for years, most of them carried out by Libyan authorities, coastal guards, and by networks of smugglers who sometimes work closely with coastal guards and people in power. Miron Nabosi spoke with Marwa Muhammad, the Libya researcher at Amnesty International Regional Office for North Africa, whose recent report, Libya's dark web of collusion, details European government's complicity in the suffering of refugees and migrants stuck in Libya.
1: Amnesty International published in December a report titled Libya's Dark Web of Collusion. It's a comprehensive report that details the conditions of abuse of North African migrants in Libya on their way to Europe. And you were part of the research team. Talk to us about the report, how it came about, and if you can give our listeners an idea about some of the main findings of the report.
2: So the report aimed to document uh, several factors in terms of the plight of migrants and refugees inside of Libya. So we look at the violations that are occurring inside of Libya. We look at the what we call the web of collusion between the smuggling networks and the Libyan Coast Guard, which is detailed again in the report, and that that happens within the detention centers as well. And then we also look at the complicity of EU policy and EU governments in the abuse that happens to the migrants inside of Libya. And this is detailed with regard to the training and support that the EU has provided to the Libyan Coast Guard, for example, intercepting boats that are leaving Libya, trying to make their way to Europe, the migrants and refugees, and bringing them back to Libya, knowing very well that any boat that is rescued or intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard, those who are brought back to Libya are then immediately transferred to detention centers. And then we detail the atrocities that happen inside the detention centers.
1: To start unpacking things a little further, talk to us about the political climate in Libya. Libya has multiple political forces in control. Explain to our listeners what the political and security situation looks like in Libya, please.
2: Libya currently is, since the uprising in 2011, has experienced a series of turmoil. And the situation further deteriorated in 2014, where we saw that we have essentially three governments vying for power, one placed in the east and two in the west, pretty much divided along political and ideological lines. However, the reality is that none of these governments have real essential effective control on the ground over the entire territory. So there are little pockets where they may claim some form of control However, it really is the militias that are essentially in control over most of the area. So in light of that, we have seen a series, obviously, of violations that are taking place within the country in terms of those that are towards the migrants and refugees. We've seen a collapse in state institutions. We've seen the judiciary is weakened entirely and able to address any of these concerns. In light of all of that, there is the context in the country towards migrants and refugees, as well as Libyans. We have documented and seen cases of extrajudicial killings. We've seen abductions and forced disappearances, arbitrary and prolonged detention, all of this within the context of pretty much a lawless Situation
1: In terms of the conditions of the African uh, migrants and refugees, you were able to witness detention centers. And I know that these detention centers can be controlled by, I guess, government or more official maybe detention centers, but there's others that are controlled by smugglers. So you also had the chance to interview some of those refugees and migrants that are kept in detention centers. How do people end up there? What do they tell you about their experiences and how they ended up in the detention centers?
2: Like you rightfully pointed out, the situation is that we have in the West, essentially, is the DCIM, or what is referred to as the Department for Combating Illegal Migration, which was established in 2012, to address the mass influx or the mass flow of migrants into the country. What we see is, in terms of an increase, is essentially, again, going back to the general breakdown of institutions, the lack of border control that provided the ample environment for smuggling and trafficking networks to emerge within that context. And so the increase in number of those entering into the country basically looking for ways to reach Europe. Many of them are. There are those who are actually, in fact, looking to work in Libya and then return home. So you have what are referred to as official centres that are nominally, and I emphasize that, under the control of the DCIM or the Department for Combating Illegal Migration, which is under the Ministry of Interior. However, these centres are controlled by militias, militia groups that may not necessarily adhere to that command structure of the central authorities. Then you have an indefinite or unknown number of what are basically places of captivity where migrants and refugees are held by unknown armed groups that will contain them and then force them to pay ransom for their release. You see the same kind of treatment that happens whether it is within these uh, places of containment or detention centers where they are held under torture, forced to call their families to pay a certain amount of money which can then secure their release from these places. It could vary how you fall into the hands of either these centres or places of captivity. What, through our interviews and what we were able to document, let's say, for those that find themselves in these places of captivity, are usually what the migrants and refugees have referred to as armed groups, or ASMA boys. And they could be sitting, waiting under a bridge, looking for a job, and a group of Armed men will come and tell them, we have a job for you, and then take them and lock them up. This is an account, uh, several accounts that we've received on that. Also while walking in the street, they may be abducted and placed again in these places of captivity. Within the official centers for those who, many of them obviously are undocumented, the Libyan Coast Guard, once these boats are intercepted or rescued, they are transferred immediately to the detention centers under the official centers under the DCIM. What we also saw in October with the clashes that occurred in Sabrata, which, is, which was until then the major smuggling route by boat to Europe, it was the hub. And once the clashes took place and there was a change of power structure within that city, the top smugglers that are known had fled. And what we found was thousands of people who were waiting, essentially, for their turn to depart by boat, were then assisted by humanitarian organizations, but eventually about... 15,000 were then transferred to official detention centers as a result.
1: But it seems like also what you're saying that even within the official centers, sometimes these official centers are also run by militias.
2: Absolutely. So these official centers are essentially, at the end of the day, run by militia groups. We do not have an institutionalized security and that's why we use the term nominally they are under the control so they are official recognized militias that are under the control of the ministry of interior however there is very little control over them from the central authorities this is more so outside of the central authority reach which is again because of the situation in the country It's territorially divided, so militias control certain areas, and there are territorial lines by which they have effective control. A militia or an armed group will have official control over this particular area. And so you'll find that even the central authorities have very little, in the West at least, those militias within Tripoli, for example, will not have the reach beyond Tripoli or even sometimes a particular area of the city.
1: Also, for San what you're saying is that the picture appears to be like if you're an African migrant in Libya, you're essentially hunted down, even if you're walking on the street. Is that maybe an accurate characterization? I think
2: the accurate characterization is that it exasperates the vulnerability of the refugees and migrants i mean noting that in a country that there is again no institutionalized structure of law enforcement where it is essentially militias that really have control on the ground being an undocumented sub-saharan african in the country places you at an extreme vulnerability also recognizing that many of those that are coming in are refugees essentially or asylum seekers and unhcrs the lack of official recognition by the state authorities of unhcr really limits the protection space that this organization that can be provided towards refugees and asylum seekers in the country. So it places them at a vulnerability where it's this vast network where these armed groups see this as a potential means by which they can gain economic growth in a country where the economy is in dire circumstances. We've had accounts of those that were, again, picked up off the street and placed in houses or farmlands in the middle of nowhere and no one knows where they are or or how to reach them and even if that's possible and once they're placed, they'll find hundreds of others already perished in these places where they need to make the phone calls to get money which is the only way that they'll be able to get released to secure that release.
1: This takes me to my next question. You're probably familiar with the CNN expose from a couple of months ago, where Mm -hmm. a video of an auction was released, and in the video, African men were being bid on and sold. The issue of slavery in Libya was mentioned by various international organizations even before the CNN expose, including by Amnesty, if I'm not mistaken. You may have started to touch on that, but if you can explain to us more what the nature of these auctions or slave trade is really? Are people sold for labor? What happens to those people being sold?
2: For Amnesty, we have interviewed and taken testimony not just for this report, but for years now. And we have not documented explicitly open market auctions. That has never been documented. We've never come across through the interviews and testimonies that we've taken. However, we have documented, and this is also referred to in the report, bonded labor, those that are, that are held in, in captivity or in official detention centers where they have no other means by which to secure their release. They have to pay a fee, a ransom fee, essentially, in order to secure that release. So many of them are then forced to call a former employer, who will come in, secure their release, and then are forced to work off that fine that was paid. We have documented cases of those being then held in places of captivity where they are tortured and forced to call their families for a ransom and be released. They're handed over to smugglers where a transaction takes place. However, in terms of open market auctions, that is not something that we have in our work researching this have actually come across.
1: And tell us more about those smugglers. It appears that there are extensive networks of smugglers in different areas in the country. Are those networks old, meaning before the fall of Qaddafi? How expansive and established are those networks?
2: The migration routes from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, or essentially even West Africa, into Libya is not a new movement. Libya has seen this since back in 2008, 2005, which essentially then led to the friendship agreement between Libya and Italy, and the pushback, again, is documented in the report. However, obviously, the environment under the former regime is One that didn't allow for this kind of smuggling networks to flourish entirely, as we see today. And this comes from, again, the breakdown in border control and and security apparatus. And all of that essentially led to an emerging emboldenment of these smuggling networks, where by what we see at the peak of it in 2015 and 2016, it became a vast network that from the beginning in Zwara, which is the coastal city next to the far most western part of Libya, when that shut down, they just moved over to Sabrata, the next city. It was a growing network that really did with the breakdown and the conflicts that were happening, became emboldened with very little adherence to the possibility of accountability.
1: And to that point also, to what extent can we see this issue of exploitation of African migrants as a Libyan problem, that of maybe racism of the Libyan society or of economics, people profiting from the vulnerable situation of those communities? especially during this uh, volatile situation of the country? Or is it more, in your opinion, a direct result of European migration policies and the fact that many of those migrants are being intercepted while trying to cross the Mediterranean?
2: I don't think it's one or the other. I think that the European migration policy, in terms of what we're seeing today, of training and supporting the Libyan Coast Guard, providing them with the equipment, building their capacity, without putting in the necessary measures and standards for the basic principles of human rights. It is not unknown what is happening to refugees and migrants in Libya. It is not unknown that Libya's policy, its migration control is detention. It is not unknown that what is happening in these detention centers in terms of the treatment, the exploitation, the actual physical structures of the detention centers themselves and the treatment inside. It's not something that comes to anyone as a surprise. This has been well documented in the past amnesty. We have documented this and we have issued reports on this and the the racism and treatment of those uh, inside of Libya By ensuring that the Libyan Coast Guard has the capacity to intercept those attempting to flee the torture and abuse also makes them complicit in what is happening to refugees and migrants.
1: And I'm also curious how the agreements between different Libyan forces with Italy or even potentially developments in the Libyan politics have affected things on the ground in Libya for the issue of migrants. Are there trends that you documented in your work on the ground that you could share with us in terms of how things look on the ground in Libya as a direct result of those collaborations and agreements with Italy? Going
2: back to the training of the Coast Guard, we've seen a drop in the number of those who have actually reached Europe, and Europe will see this, particularly Italy, obviously. We'll see this as a success story. However, this drop only means that the numbers of those stuck in these uh, conditions inside of Libya, where their human rights are being violated, has increased. And so this is a direct result of these policies. Those who are intercepted and disembarked inside of Libya are immediately transferred to detention centers. There were no safeguards put in place for when these policies were established, that would at least establish the minimum human rights standards. There was no attempt to end detention, and this is something that we are calling for, the end of detention, the use of detention as a migration control uh, mechanism by the Libyan authorities, the the lack of an asylum system. Now we're seeing this large number of what the assisted Voluntary return. So, this is a mass uh, repatriation carried out by the International Organization for Migration. While this is a great initiative within itself, however, there are two concerns in this regard. Number one, while those who are perishing in detention under torture and dire humanitarian conditions within these centers, how voluntary is that return home when you have? absolutely no other options and then again without an asylum system in the country libya is not party to the 51 convention there is no mou with unhcr so without unhcr's ability to carry out its full mandate is very limited in the country there are only seven nationalities that the libyan authorities allow unhcr to extend its mandate to so what we're seeing is a profiled refugee, if you don't belong to one of these seven nationalities then what becomes your option while in detention? So without that access to asylum for those who do have a well-founded fear of persecution and without any other alternative, either detention or go home, it does place the question on how voluntary this movement is. And so the European policies should place all of this into context.
1: In your research and work in Libya, have you had the chance to confront Libyan officials with these issues, the issue of detention centers? Do Libyan officials acknowledge the problem? Do they deny it? And what do they say about how they are dealing with the issue? And what do they say in terms of how things could be improved?
2: We have reached out to the Libyan authorities and we had requested a visit inside of Libya. However, by the time of the publishing of the report, we did not receive visas yet. However, this report has come out and we will continue to engage, uh, hopefully, with the Libyans as well as the European member states on ways to improve which is to condition the assistance that is provided and conditioning on the full recognition of UNHCR to carry out its full mandate. So we'd like to see at least at minimum an MOU between the Libyan authorities and UNHCR so that UNHCR can carry out its full mandate. Libya, although is not party to the 51 Convention, is party to the 1969 African Convention on Refugees and also has an obligation towards the 1969 Convention. So we would like to see basically a re-examining of the existing policies and agreements between Libya and the EU and your EU member states by which resetting the agreements that would then condition upon UNHCR's recognition. We'd like to see an end to detention center and obviously an increase in the resettlement slots that the European member states encourage more numbers of recognized refugees as well to leave Libya.
1: My final question was to talk a little bit more about things going forward, maybe solutions, but you already, I think, mentioned some of the work that Amnesty is working on for future. Um, I guess if there's any final thoughts or anything else that you want our listeners to know, any final maybe hopes?
2: Things are moving quite quickly in response to the situation on the ground. We've seen the task force between the African Union and uh, in the EU on repatriation of nationals back to their home countries. So we'd like to see an increase in resettlement slots for refugees and a space for those seeking asylum to do so inside of the country. We'd like to see alternative channels that are safe and legal routes that would allow them to to migrate or leave legally without having to place themselves at the mercy of smugglers, where they are then exposed to these uh, continuous human rights violations.
0: Marboa Muhammad, is the Libya researcher at Amnesty International Regional Office for North Africa, based in Tunisia. She spoke with Vomina's Mira Nabulsi about Amnesty's recent report detailing European government's complicity in the suffering of refugees and migrants stuck in Libya. We reached her in Tunis. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: our coverage of the thousands of refugees who risk their lives by attempting to cross the Mediterranean to get to Europe. Mira Nabulzi speaks with historian and post-colonial theorist Professor Gabriele Prolio about his research on the Mediterranean borders and illegal crossings.
1: Let's start by talking about your research. You have a new paper that was just published, and it's titled Is the Mediterranean a White Italian-European Sea? The Multiplications of Borders in the Production of Historical Subjectivity. Talk to us about the work you're currently doing, and explain to our listeners the argument that you're making in this paper.
3: This paper is dedicated to a research project that was based at the European University Institute and was dedicated to collect oral memories with migrants from the Horn of Africa to Europe. My aim uh, was to try to problematize the think uh, of the Mediterranean Sea as not only a white European uh, sea. In fact, there are a lot of people uh, only in 2016, uh, in the number of people who cruise uh, the Mediterranean are 180 thousand people who arrive from everywhere in uh, Africa and try to enter in Europe. This is a Black uh, Sea. My idea is that the theoretical point of view is try to planetize the think of uh, Mediterranean that is a border for a new future for uh, thousands of people uh, from uh, Africa to Europe.
1: Why do you think this is important?
3: The goal is to try to say that Europe is changing uh, with all these migrations from the north of Africa, not only from the north of Africa, but also that some uh, policies uh, in controlling borders uh, is something that is very connected to populism, and Europe is not nowadays only a white continent, so there are a lot of groups, a lot of uh, cultures, And so we have to try to rethink our geography in a new perspective, multiple perspectives. So the idea of thinking the border has something that has a differential inclusion, but also can be the way for rethinking our space, our way to have connections with people.
1: As part of your research, you interviewed refugees from the Horn of Africa who are currently in Italy, and you talk to them about why they took the dangerous and often deadly trip to Italy. In one of the interviews you share in your latest paper, you talked to a refugee, Asnai from Ethiopia, and he talks to you about what he went through leaving his country and crossing to Sudan and then ending up stuck in Libya for about two years, where he says he was sold few yeah. times. Can you explain what that means exactly? Was he sold for labor? I know that some refugees and migrants are also sometimes captured by gangs who demand a ransom in return for their release. Share with us some of uh, what the people you interviewed talked to you about. What type of experiences did they share with you, specifically in Libya?
3: A lot of men talked to me about the travel and how the travel was very difficult in the sense that they tried to arrive in Libya because they know that Libya is the hub for arriving to Europe. When they arrived in Libya, they were contacted by illegal smugglers, traffickers, and they started to say, come with me, I can give you the possibility to cross the Mediterranean, you have to pay these, etc., etc." So some of them, they at a certain point, uh, they were in jail because there are official jails, so the Libyan jails, and there are also other jails that are um, created by Libyan people. What is the connection? The connection is that they say to these migrants, the Libyan people say to these migrants, if you ask to your family to pay an amount, uh, usually are $2,000, and uh, we give you the possibility to cross the Mediterranean. Sometimes these people have not the possibility to pay, so they remain in jail for one, two, three years. A lot of women that I interviewed said to me that there were a lot of violence some of them talking to me about rapes, in general, violence against black people who arrive in Libya. So there's a very important discriminated question connected to the color. What I have found in my research. I know that there are a lot of other people who are not arrived in Europe and I have not interviewed these people. And I think I know because I work also in Tunisia at the University of Tunis. And I know by Libyan friends of mine that the condition of these people is very terrible, something very impossible because they have not the possibility to get back home, but they have not the possibility to cross the Mediterranean. And so is a permanent state of exclusion for these people.
1: And those of them that do make it to Italy, what possibilities do they have and what rights are they entitled to?
3: For replying to this question, I have uh, to open another question that is connected to politics in uh, Europe in general and in Italy. A lot of parties try to invest in xenophobia in racism as way for trying to collect uh, votes, uh, to collect some preferences by Italian people. So from the left wing and the right wing, the question of migration is a political question in terms of uh, having a representation uh, in the parliament. Why I say this? Because the problem is that all policies that now are working in the Mediterranean, have been elaborated, or were elaborated, for trying to manage the question, uh, not exactly only the movement of people, but uh, the impact of this movement on media and the Italian population. It's very difficult to try to rethink another geography. Also because, uh, for example, the Italian government elaborated a strategy that has been created in four points. The first was the agreement uh, with Al-Saragi, that is the Libyan premier. The second, uh, to reactivate uh, the relationship with Egypt. And so here does the question of Giulio Regeni and all other questions connected uh, with this. Just to clarify, this is an
1: Italian uh, researcher, graduate student that was disappeared and then found dead in Egypt. And then there is also migrants arriving through Egypt. So just to clarify why Egypt is a party in this conversation.
3: And at a certain point, the Italian government, so there was a process, also an investigation open. At a certain point, the Italian government decided to reactivate the Italian embassy in Cairo. Why? Because of course the political relationship with Egypt was important in controlling borders and controlling movements of people and in general for the geopolitical impact in the area. The third point is the agreement with Fetsan. In Fetsan there are the and is the south part of Libya, there are tribes uh, so they had an agreement with these groups for controlling borders and for controlling people who arrived from Sudan. This is the third point. And the fourth point that is at the center of a very important dialogue now in Italy is a military action in Niger. The prime minister said that this military mission was for trying to control borders, but we know and there are a lot of articles on different newspapers in this period about how Niger was at the center of uh, land-grabbing action from different European countries, and one of these is Italy. So there's a very, very important investment in terms of uh, policies for controlling borders, but also for controlling the impact of migration on the Italian electorate, in general, uh, on the Italian people.
1: So this was in terms of the power relations, which I was going to ask you about. Before we talk more about that, I wanted to also just clarify, in terms of refugees that do make it to the Italian shores, if they are already in Italy, they're usually not sent back, are they?
3: The question is that the status of refugee people, you can apply in two different ways. The first one is when uh, you arrive, you can apply saying uh, what is your path for arriving, uh, your migration for arriving uh, to a certain point. The other one is to enter in Europe. Here there's a very important load connected to who can apply for being a refugee or not. There are people who are not refugee people, for example, a Tunisian man cannot be applied for being a refugee people, but perhaps is in Libya and is not recognized by the international right. He cannot try to have contact with these institutions. The only one is NGO institutions, also for trying to control this way of moving people, that is a possibility to move people for humanitarian questions. Some NGO people can do this. Some months ago, the Italian government approved, tried to approve a statement with the main NGO association for controlling how these people have a relationship with not refugee people. So, it's very difficult, and I think the situation in Libya is very complicated. So there are refugees, there are asylum seekers, but there are also people that are not refugee or asylum seekers and are in jail or other situation of reclusion.
1: Like economic migrants, for example, do those yeah. eventually not get processed? They don't have the right to claim asylum or apply? Because there's no recognized conflict or humanitarian crisis in their country. So then what happens to those people?
3: So, for example, um, the Tunisian people that after 2011, after the revolution in Tunisia, tried to move to Italy. So these people are not recognized in the international right. So there are some categories of people have not uh, the possibility to apply for this position and in general also i would like to try to think in an intersectional way why intersectional in the sense that i would like to multiply my perspective not only about the citizenship status but also in terms of class in terms of gender in terms of color so only people who have a rich family have the possibility to migrate to Europe. The same thing is in terms of gender. Only some people and only people who live the countries, for example, Somali people, or we can say also Nigerian people, in Europe there are only some jobs for the categories. There's a segmentation of the market, So Somali women have the possibility to find only some work. For example, Nigerian woman, another. Tunisian man, another. Most part of the time they have not a job in Italy if they have a job is in the illegal market.
1: So you're saying things really depend on where people are coming from and their nationality and even if they do remain in Italy, their prospects in terms of finding work have a lot to do also with their class or their nationality as well, because there's some sort of a stratification of the market. Yeah. If we were to go back to what you were starting to explain in terms of the power relations, you mentioned how borders and citizenship obscure violence. I find that very powerful statement. And with that in mind, I wanted to start delving more into the power relations in the Mediterranean and the history of the libya italy relationship in what concerns the control of mobility across the Mediterranean. If you can talk more about that, especially from a historical angle.
3: We can say that... Libya has been in mind from the beginning of Italy, so in 1861, the idea of conquer uh, Libya started at the beginning of the 20th century with nationalist movements that said we are a Mediterranean race and we have to find our place in the Mediterranean, the only place that was free, because. France was in uh, Tunisia and Morocco, the United Kingdom was in uh, Egypt, and the only one was Libya. So at a certain point in 1911, 1912, the Italian government decided for military action for conquering Libya. They conquered in only two years. Libya was under the Ottoman Empire. Fascism reconquest after the First World War in 1922-23, started to invest in uh, Libya in terms of propaganda, the idea of a Mediterranean race connected to fascism, was at the center of Mussolini dialogue. And after the end of the Second World War, the decolonization we can, the first king and the first political uh, leader in the new Libya after the war, and then Gaddafi. Gaddafi has been considered in Europe uh, in different ways. First, as connected with not-aligned countries, so with, uh, for example, India and also Egypt and so on, Cuba, etc. And then uh, at the end uh, of uh, the 80s, We know very well that he started to have contact with Italy, Italian governments, and we arrive after the 90s with the starting of migrant flows from everywhere, first from East Europe and then, of course, from North Africa and all Africa to Europe. Gaddafi was an interlocutor of Berlusconi, for controlling borders, uh, controlling migration. There are two free agreements. The first one has been uh, signed in Benghazi in 2008, uh, and the second one in Tripoli in 2012.
1: One during Kazafi's yeah. time, and one after his fall.
3: Yeah. In fact, for example, um, the new agreement between Italy and Libya, they have taken into account the two others agreements signed uh, in the past. In between those, uh, there has been a civil war after the fall of Gaddafi. After 2011, Libya has been spread in uh, three political parts. The first one uh, in Tripoli, the second one in um, Benghazi, and the third one was in Fezzani in the south. The first two parts were very important for these last five uh, years. War. I would like to add that uh, even if we have two different uh, governments, uh, one in Benghazi and one in Tripoli, we have to think uh, in that period from 2011 to 2015, The Libya has a place uh, where... Every town, every city has been controlled by militia that uh, usually is connected also with... I don't want to use the term um, ISIS. That term uh, is very generic, and we have to think uh, Libya in that period has a myriad of groups, uh, military groups, From Europe, they said, okay, they are easy. In general, this is not correct because there are a lot of groups and they act for the convenience and not for, in general, for a political or religious question. So it's a very different perspective that we have to adapt to think uh, and to analyze the condition in Libya after Gaddafi.
1: And can we say maybe that things actually have become worse for African migrants and refugees trying to make it to
3: Europe? I think so. And I think also there were two different uh, situations. The first one was uh, state-nation situation. Gaddafi could control the migrant flows. The other one is the present one and is about how different groups control migration and there is not government control on this movement also on the trade connected to migration. So I don't want to say that it was better before and now but perhaps now is from the memories that I collected something very violent. It's very difficult to try to exactly say what is to stay in Libya now.
1: But I think it's also important to point out that statistics suggest that the more support there is for the Libyan coast guard and push from the Italian government, the more boats are intercepted and the more lives are saved. But at the same time, unfortunately, that also means that more people, more African refugees and migrants are, if intercepted, placed then later in detention centers in horrendous conditions in Libya. So the success of interception over the Mediterranean also means perhaps more people being stuck in Libya and locked in these horrible uh, detention centers.
3: Yeah, in fact, how I said before, when... Italian government uh, say that it wants to control migrant flows. They want to say that they wanted to control the public uh, impact uh, on migrant flows. The um, Interior Minister he worked in different ways for uh, trying uh, to decrease uh, the movement of people, so migration, but uh, these have consequences in terms, first, uh, of having relationship with groups uh, in North Africa and in Fetsan for controlling migrants. The second thing is the life of these people, because uh, they, of course, have not the possibility to arrive in Italy, because they have been intercepted by Libyan coast guard. This is because of the agreement between Italy and Libya. Europe wrote a letter to the Italian government opening an investigation on the agreement between Italy and Libya because of the relationship between the Italian government and Libya had been a very bad impact on the life of a lot of thousands of migrants that now are in jail and also other that... Stay in human condition uh,
1: in Libya. You were also touching on the agreements uh, between Italy and the southern tribes in Libya. Apparently, Italy also has organized meetings with Libyan mayors in different parts of the country It makes me wonder if meeting with so many different actors within the country is perhaps helping destabilization and lawlessness because it empowers different actors to take things into their own hands when it comes to controlling the smuggling. What do you think about that?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think also that the problem is about a general idea in Europe that I think that is an imaginary the idea of invasion. The same in Libya, there's another imaginary that is uh, the idea that these migrants are subhuman and have to be used for money, and so there is no respect of human rights. So, from one side, you have Europe that say, okay, there's the invasion of Europe, and this is not true, because we know that there's a decrease of the percentage of migration in Europe, and on the other there's uh, Libyan people i don't want to uh, say that all Libyan people but in general we can if we talk about uh, an imaginary uh, we can say this there's a Libyan imaginary connected to migrant people that can be used for making money and also for improving uh, the social condition, because, of course, after Gaddafi, there has been a fall of the social condition in Libya. So- It's very complex, the situation.
1: If we're just to finally move to talk about some solutions, obviously all this talk about Italy and the EU doesn't mean that Libya has no responsibility. And you're obviously also quite critical of the Italian government and its agenda in dealing with the migrant crisis over the Mediterranean. But where do you see some hope and possible
3: solutions? For me, a political uh, way for doing something is collecting these uh, oral memories, and trying to talk about these people, this is what I can say from my side. In general, I think that uh, the problem is uh, perhaps uh, that now we are, I don't want to say that we are starting a new colonial condition uh, from Europe to other continents, in particular from Europe to Africa. But I have this impression. I remember when there has been the Balkan War, when they decided for uh, military action, they have talked a lot about this. There has been protest movements against the war. Now I think that the situation is very different. So there's an absence of what happened in the Mediterranean. So think, for example, that from the beginning of the year, 200 people lost their life, and it's normal. This is the impact of what happened in the Mediterranean and then what happened in Libya. I think that only solution could be starting to think that we can live in another way without borders is the only one solution, because... If we started to think that we have to protect our border and we have to protect our nation and we have to protect our country and so on and so on, there are a lot of uh, questions such as, for example, race, different minorities. Yes, of course, uh, the question of uh, citizenship so we have to start to think uh, together that uh, it's possible to have a community without borders. I know that is an utopian solution, but uh, I think it's the only solution.
2: Gabriel Prolio is a researcher at the Center for Social Studies at the University of Coimbra in Portugal. He's working on a new research project dedicated to the study of the Mediterranean borders and illegal crossings. He spoke with Mira Nabulsi.
0: You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer Paola Messina at, at statushour.com to listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.